So tonight I wanted to start with this um, poem. It has a very long title, which is After my friend Phyllis shows me the New York Times obituary headline, Lou Michaels, all-purpose player, dies at 80, missed kicks in 69 Super Bowl. So, uh, it's, um, the poem goes like this. When I die, let them write about all the mistakes I've made. Let them mention in the headlines how many rejection letters I've received from the sun. Let them say, missed her calling for Broadway back in 1987. Let them say she trained hard but never won a Nordic ski skate race. They can note how my children fought in front of company, how every chocolate cake I made sank in the center, how the beets in my garden were never bigger than golf balls, how I never even watched the Super Bowl, much less knew who played for the Colts back in 1969 while I was still forming in my mother's womb and Lou Michaels missed two field goals that helped the Jets win. What do any of us really accomplish? My friend Wayne says, we do what we can and have mercy. Yes, let them say I did what I could. Let them say that I loved the best I knew how and messed that up too. It's what we do, we who are kicking our way to the back pages of the paper. Well-intentioned and foundering, Faithful and confused as we are, we mess up. Yes, mercy on us. Mercy on all our failing little hearts. How they beat so sincerely. Mercy on this longing to shine. This reminder again to kneel. So are you concerned about what your obituary might say? <laughs> Oh no, they're not going to write about that. Nobody remembers that, do they? It's very normal that we think a lot about what other people think about us, how they see us, whether or not we look good or did well enough or accomplished something. So today's topic is this tendency to compare and self-judge. And it's all related to a particular concept that the Buddha taught, because he knew about this. And the, the topic is actually conceit. That's the word. But we'll, we'll unpack what that word means. It has a meaning in English, of course, but it's a little different um, in the teachings. Of course, conceit has its sort of gross, top-level meaning that we all know, but it also becomes very subtle um, in our mind. It, it has a very deep root. It manifests in a lot of different ways. So actually, at its, at its root, conceit <laughs> is about making a concept right? Conceit, conception, it's the same word. So it's about taking an actual, real experience and making it into an abstract idea. So we've made taken something real and made it into some kind of a representation. And then that idea 
um, tends to have a me attached to it, and there can be evaluation and comparison and all kinds of things based on that. And then when we, when we do that, when we put the, the me onto it, then it becomes a problem. The abstraction into ideas is not, maybe not inherently a problem. How's the sound? Is that working or is it just too irritating? <laughs> I see some. <laughs> okay, I'm going to turn it off. All right. So first of all, the Buddha acknowledged that conceit is a normal part of the human mind. You know, this tendency to to make ideas out of things. And he even talked about how it can be useful. So here's something from the written teachings. This body comes into being through conceit. And yet it is by relying on conceit that conceit is to be abandoned. Thus it was said, and in what reference was it said, there is the case where a person hears the practitioner named such and such, they say, through the ending of mental defilements, has entered and remains in Nibbana, having known and realized for themselves here and now this peaceful state. And so the thought occurs, ah, the monk named such and such, or the practitioner named such and such, has done all of this, then why not me? So that's a comparison, right? You know, they could do it, why not me? And so this is a, considered a skillful use. And then eventually, through, you know, through that idea, uh, the person eventually will abandon the whole notion of conceit and making comparisons. That becomes unnecessary at some point. But it's okay that we model ourselves on people in some way. So this is from the, the teacher Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He summarizes that sutta. He says, when you hear of someone who has put an end to suffering and has made it all the way to the goal, you can reflect, ah, that person is a human being. I'm a human being. That person can do it, so can I. To that extent, you need conceit in the practice. If you believe that you can't do the practice, or if it seems way beyond you, you end up giving up, or you set your sights too low. So to that extent, conceit is helpful. But it has fangs. Ajahn Mahabua calls it the fangs of ignorance, when you have the conceit that, well, this is going to be easy, and you get careless or complacent. And conceit has another side as well. The Buddha talks about comparing yourself to other people, thinking that you're better or equal or worse than they are. All of these comparisons count as conceit. In other words, the idea, I am this or I am that, gets brought into every issue, and this is where it grows fangs. So it's a fine line, realizing where conceit is going to be helpful and where it's going to bite. There was a lot in there, and we're going to kind of unpack all the different dimensions of of conceit. It has a lot of different dimensions. One dimension is comparison, as noted there. So we compare ourselves to what? To other people. We compare ourselves to ideals. 
you know, how many of us are striving to be some kind of, some version of perfection in some way uh, in our mind, even if we don't admit it. Or we compare ourselves to past or future projections. Oh, I'm so much, my memory's going. I don't remember as well as I used to. Well, so, <laughs> if you didn't remember who, how it used to be, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> Maybe we can forget that, along with forgetting various people's names and stuff. So, we have these dimensions where we tend to compare things. And in terms of most of these, all of these comparisons, but particularly to people, we have a tendency to compare ourselves as superior or better than. This is one of them. This is the usual meaning of the word conceit, right? So we, we know basically what this is. We may not do it blatantly, but we probably have little ways that we do it. And interestingly, this was talked about 2,600 years ago also. This is from a different written teaching. Settling on her own as supreme among views, whatever a person esteems as best in the world, in comparison, she says, all others are inferior. Therefore, she has not transcended disputes. Whatever benefit one sees for oneself in any type of experience or in good behavior and observances, having grasped hold of that alone, one regards all else as inferior. The skilled speak of that as a knot when one is attached and regards others as inferior. So, pretty, it goes on. <laughs> so, you know, pretty uh, clear indication that this is not a skillful way to be, and yet, of course, very human. And even at this time, there were, you know, at this time, many hundreds of years ago, there were people who you know, were inflated and felt that they knew the best, and they were the best, intended to see others as inferior. But then, it takes a little turn, and... It says, one should not take oneself as equal, or think of oneself as inferior or superior. Wait a minute. So it, is, it starts to include other dimensions. And in particular, this dimension of inferior is an interesting one, because this is also conceit, the idea of worse than, lesser than, not as good as. Also a conceit, because it's a comparison. That's the only thing, that's the only criterion that matters. Sometimes we, we may even believe, um, because we're trying so hard to avoid being the inflated, conceited type, we may think it's better to esteem others and um, place ourselves very low. There are even, you know, there are schools that teach this, religions that teach this. Um, my sense is that those teachings are usually correctives. <laughs> you know, they're, they're for balance. If we have a tendency toward inflation or superiority, it may be good for us to practice um, inflation of others and diminishment of ourselves. And generally, diminishment of the self is, of course, what letting go of conceit is about. But we tend to think of diminishment not as just reducing the intensity of having a self, but instead of creating a big, solid, thick self that is bad. That's not what diminishment of self means. But that's how we see it. And, and it's also 
um, maybe more among meditator um, tending to be introvert, more quieter types, there's more of this tendency, I think, sometimes toward uh, seeing ourselves as worse than. And it's also very easy to do, um, to have a sense that we're not quite measuring up, that we, um, you know, we didn't get as far as we wanted to, we're not as skilled in this or that. And, and you know, we think we're being honest and clear about that, as if we could be good at everything. <laughs> Um, my experience from watching my own mind, you can check for yourself, is that pride and shame, or inferior and superior, are really just two sides of the same coin. And so if you have one, you likely have the other, too. Maybe just not as seen, not as prominently. Um, But I think you can't escape the one by enhancing the other. If you've just turned the coin over then, basically. And um, so then this points toward maybe there must be some other approach to this problem. I mean, it's painful either way, right? It's painful to think you're terrible, and it's painful to think you're great, because then you have anxiety about whether someone's going to displace you. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's, comparisons tend to lead to suffering. So then we know that we have the solution when we decide, ah, everybody is equal. (laughs) Everybody's equal. We're all the same. Um, You can tell by my tone of voice that I'm setting this one up. Because remember, this says one should not think of oneself as equal or as inferior or superior. Well, wait a minute. What about equality? That's pretty good especially given our society, I mean, it's a value of American society that we believe in certain kinds of equalities and uh, equalities of opportunity, for example. It's a real tenet of our culture. And I'm not saying that we should throw that out. Um, it's it probably... I'm reminded, reminded of this phrase that says, um, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. You know, And so it's kind of like... It's the best option. So something like um, the conceit of equality is the worst except for the other options. So um, it's probably the best if you want to choose some form of conceit to take the conceit of equality. But of course, saying that two things are equal still creates a separation between them and then compares them as equal. (laughs) It's still a comparison, actually. You haven't completely escaped. And... You know, one reason that it doesn't, doesn't work ultimately is that we know that everything changes, right? Everything fluctuates, nothing stays the same, it's all dynamically flowing. Even if you don't know that at a very deep level, we all understand that at some level. And so if you start with things that are equal, what's the only way it can go? They're going to change relative to each other, and then whatever criterion you use to decide that they were equal, one's going to become inferior and one's superior. So this is not a long-term solution. Another issue with the conceit of equality, because it actually gets, it gets deeper, this one, is that we may be erasing real differences. Saying that everything is equal is dangerously close to saying that everything is the same. And it's not. It's clearly not everything is the same. Um, you know, as, even among people, Uh, I don't consider myself equal to my spiritual teachers, who are 
deeper than me spiritually. Uh, that is just the case. It would be incorrect to make that assessment. And there are genuine, you know, there's genuine expertise. There are people who are very skilled and very expert because they've practiced something for 40 years, you know, pottery or editing, whatever it is. And they're really good. <laughs> they're better than someone that just started a year ago. And so how do we account for the reality of the diversity and the richness of the world if we claim everything is just equal and give it kind of a wash? So not wanting to compare is more subtle than just saying everything is equal. This Everything is unique, actually. And that starts to lean toward what we're looking for is a, an understanding that everything is so utterly itself, it couldn't be compared to anything else. The danger of conceit, if you will, is summed up nicely in this quote from Ajahn Suchito. From, interestingly, from a book, um, the chapter of the book is on metta, is on loving-kindness. But he's talking about comparison. So he says, when we consider otherness, the way beings are different from us, we can feel either insecurity, how does she compare with me, or contempt, you're not as good as me, or fear and intimidation, you're better or stronger than me, or we can feel adoration or attraction, I want to be bonded to you. These immediate assumptions are called conceit. That is, we conceive of people as worse, better, or the same as us. Right? It's this making of a concept. The effect is that the mind's responsiveness gets stuck. It doesn't see the rich or successful with compassion for their suffering. It doesn't value the beauty, humor, or resilience of those worse than me. And it doesn't respect the differences of those who are the same as me. Caught in the conceit of self-view, the heart doesn't extend its boundaries of appreciation and concern. We take each other for granted as my wife, my boss, my teacher. And that fixing of them freezes our sensitivity. In that state, the heart easily tips over into complaining about the other not being the way they should be, or rather the way I want them to be. And so the heart becomes a breeding ground for ill will. It was a chapter on metta, on goodwill. And so he explains quite clearly how conceit leads to the opposite of goodwill. And the cultivation of goodwill actually undermines conceit to some degree. I don't think it can completely uproot it. But it's interesting that metta practice um, erases some of the boundaries that are created through conceit, as he described so well. So there's this lovely there's this lovely idea in the Zen world called the true person of no rank. Have you heard that phrase? It's from a koan by Lin Ji. And the koan is, don't worry, we're not going to have to answer it. But you could. There is a true person of no rank who is constantly coming and going from the portals of your face. Who is that true person of no rank? So 
So there's a lot of ways to consider a teaching like that. What does it mean to have no rank? Not a better rank or a worse rank or an equal rank, but no rank. So having no rank, and quote another teacher, it doesn't mean having no opinion, no personality, no position on anything. It's more of an understanding of how things actually work. So now we're getting into the way that letting go of conceit, letting go of concepts, starts to put us in touch with how things actually are. Because the challenge is when we take experience that's real and we conceptualize it, we, we abstract it into an idea, we've lost touch, actually, with what it really is. So having no position is an understanding of how things actually work. We can watch this in our own mind. This is from John Tarrant, also a Zen teacher. You don't notice how much the mind makes up stories about people until you catch it in the act. Your mind is walking down the street going, fat guy, old lady, frat boy, cute girl, scary guy, doesn't wash. Guy, girl, guy, girl, girl, guy. Wait, is that a guy or a girl? The mind goes, label, 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 until it doesn't, and a different possibility appears. If you really show up in your own life, you don't have rank. No rank is not about humility. It's about noticing who you really are. So seeing things for real, you start to get toward this idea of no rank, no conceit. He alludes to this, this different possibility. Label, 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 the mind goes, until it doesn't, and a different possibility appears. Now, what are, what are some other options to this labeling, this story-making, this continual judging and valuing and ranking that is so automatic in our mind? There's a, there are, again, different ways to approach this. I'll, I'll, kind of, I'll mention two, kind of at different levels. Uh, one would be becoming your own friend, and this relates, again, to the metta, Tan Jeff, Tan Bhikkhu, who I read a quote from earlier, he talked about having discernment about when conceit is useful and when it's not, when, it, when the fangs are there and when they aren't. He then goes on in the, in the rest of the talk to consider the idea of being a good friend to yourself. So an alternative to always looking outside and creating comparisons is to stay within yourself and... Basically, help yourself. Um, Be your own friend. Don't bring yourself into what you're doing, in his words. So, not continually creating ourself as something relative to the outside. We can't only create ourself. We can create ourself in relation to something else. And then that's that comparison happening there. I would say that this relates to something like a sense of intrinsic or fundamental value or worth. If an object or a being or anything has its own fundamental worth just by being there, just it's just there, then there's no need and no point and really no interest in comparing it as better or worse or anything else. 
Um, what's the phrase about the daisies? Uh, each daisy is unique, is, is unique and singular as a single daisy. And so we have the sense that um, there's a fundamental or intrinsic value to phenomena as they occur. I'll make it really general. I mean, if you think of it as people, but also um, even just sitting in our own experience during meditation, there can be a sense of this is worth my attention. This is worth paying attention to. It's valuable just to sit and feel whatever is unfolding, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, whatever. But that sense that it's worthwhile, that it is of value to be present, um, I think that is the root of non-harming. If we have a sense that this experience, whatever it is, whoever it is, why ever it is, has fundamental value and is worth my attention, we wouldn't want to do any harm. That would mar, in a sense, the moment. So we really wouldn't want to want to do harm from a place of considering fundamental value. So, I don't know, I encourage seeing if you can touch into this in meditation. I've had times when you can, you can aim to contrive it, like, uh, like metta or compassion, but it's also possible just to have it arise and just feel like, wow, this, this moment is complete as it is. It's rich, it's beautiful, it has everything in it, and then the next moment is different and has all of that also. And when there's that feeling of completeness or worth, uh, it's very satisfying, regardless of, of what the moment is. And there's no room for a me and a you and a this or a that or a better or worse or a past or a future. There isn't, uh, there isn't room for that when the moment is full like that. So what we're saying, maybe at a more subtle level, is you could say, well, if I, if I can't say better or worse or equal, what's left? And what's left, of course, is to, to see through the whole notion of comparing and to not play that game, to not buy into that. Be with things as they are, just in this moment. This is a story from the book, A Monastery Within, by Gil Fronstall, called On Suchness. Giving instruction for meditation, the abbess once held up a rose in her right hand. Please look at this flower, she said. Notice its suchness, how it appears in and of itself. Continuing to hold up the rose in her right hand, with her left hand she held up a little dandelion. Now we can say something about the rose we couldn't say before. Now we can say that the rose is the large flower compared to the dandelion, which is the small flower. Putting down the dandelion, the abbess picked up a large sunflower. While nothing has changed for the rose itself, we can now say the rose is the small flower compared to the sunflower. Large and small are not inherent in the rose. Large and small reside in the comparison with other flowers. Freed of comparison, a flower is just itself. Gaze directly at your own suchness. Much of the suffering you will have in life will arise from comparative thinking. 
In meditation, don't compare yourself with anything. There is no need to compare yourself to others, ideals, past experiences, or future imaginations. Residing in suchness, you will find the path to peace. It sounds very simple with the kind of nursery school application of the flowers, but how easily we forget such a simple truth that the comparison resides when you have the two flowers and you bring them together. So suchness is considered a quality of awakened understanding, to see things just as they are. But don't worry if your mind still has a tendency toward conceit or comparison or conceptualization of the ten fetters that bind the mind. Conceit is one of the very, very last to go. (laughs) You don't overcome it until completely liberated. So even a non-returner of the third, third kind of partially liberated being can think, am I good non-returner, bad (laughs) non-returner. So, but practicing with letting go of of comparison when it's not needed is a really good practice and one that can be done anywhere. All through daily life, it can be done on the cushion, can be done in obvious ways, you know, your car compared to another car or very, very subtle ways of sitting in meditation and thinking, could it be just a little more peaceful? (laughs) Or whatever. So, the mind is tricky. It has all kinds of ways that it's trying to manipulate, and all that is based on conceit and some idea of how things should be. But uncovering the layers is a very interesting and fruitful task. These are my thoughts on conceit for this evening. Anyone have any questions or comments? Comparisons? I'd like to point about the um, the two sides, shame and pride. Mm. With conceit, it seems um, the easier practice to run away from the hard shame. But the trick, in my mind at least, is to not fall for the trap of the pride. Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, things that hurt my feelings are easy to let go. But things that make me feel happy about myself right. are hard to let go as well. Yeah, I hear that. And it's not, of course, that we can never feel happy about something that we've done. I know you're not saying that. Um, it's when it becomes about me, you know. So we can remember a good action, and you know, we gave something to someone yesterday, and if that brings happiness, uh, that's actually skillful to remember that. But if it becomes, I'm a good person because I gave something yesterday, that starts to shade into the conceit. Um, 
And yeah, we are, it's, it's very easy to go one way or the other. There's a, um, a story about two monks, I think it is, and they're sitting on a bench in somewhere, and they're sitting for a long, 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 long time. And then one of them, I think they're in a garden, and one of them says, and they call that a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and when you said, you know, just seeing things as they are, when I heard that, I practiced looking at things and not thinking, oh, that's a pillow. Because then I'm putting a label there, and then my mind goes, oh, well, it's a soft pillow, it's a hard pillow, and why is the pillow black? I wish it had more colors. I like rainbow. So when I'm looking at nature, I have to remember, the tree doesn't know it's a tree. It's what we give it, and I think we give it so because we, we have a language. But when I look at a tree and I think, it, I think of it just as what it is, is a softness to it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a practice, yeah. But our society is based on up and down. I mean, it's really a challenge to be, you know, you know, to be in it and then not of it. Or yeah, yeah. it really is. Yeah. And you know, to function as a normal person in society, we have to. I don't know if we have to rank necessarily, but we certainly have to use concepts and ideas and. To get through our day, when you go out to the parking lot, you have to go to your car if you came by car. Um, so it's not like we're not going to, you know, we're going to stop doing that. People who stop doing that actually can't function. They have uh, big problems in the world. But the question, so that's why I was careful, I think, to say, see through this idea. And that's exactly what you're doing with that practice that you've described of kind of holding back or softening the label or making sure it doesn't doesn't become rigid or it doesn't take off into a mm-hmm. um, thought proliferation about a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really good. That helps you um, keep your mind honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to say thank you. And your, this topic has really been timely for me. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. I've been going to the uh, Dharma Funks I haven't been to this one. I haven't, you know, heard heard you teach, and I can hear myself comparing <laughs> because it's yep. my first time here. Um, and of course, I was like, you know, just struck by you, your way of teaching was like a lot calmer, and my mind was just like, Lord. <laughs> and then I like went into that and was like, well, is it her or is it you? Is it your mind or is it how she's teaching? Or like, what is it? Like, is it both? And there was this moment where I started to feel the space in your teaching. And then like that being mirrored in myself, and it was just really interesting process to have have your teaching lead me into that awareness of that you know my ego trying to compare just really wanting fodder or like food for something to grab onto and like attach to and 
recently I've been, uh, I definitely I struggle with a feeling of devalue a lot in myself and comparing because I, I have uh, I have chronic pain and um, due to Lyme, Lyme disease and it's been going on now for like seven years and there's this constant fight with it and, and anger about it being in my life and comparing my life now to how it used to be before Good to reflect on that frequently if you you have the continual chronic pain. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know if this concept helps. I'll throw another concept at you, which is, um, there's a phrase, appreciation of otherness, which I have found useful. So that um, it doesn't need to be better or worse. And I don't even need to try to make somebody equal to me. Um, they're just other, and that's fine. They're there, they're that, and I'm this. And it's still a comparison in some sense, but uh, it's much lighter. And uh, having that compassion there really softens the edges. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.